Chapter Seven of the Midnight Passenger by Richard Henry Savage. The Slippervox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. Chapter Seven. This may be my last bank deposit. There was an air of supreme content upon the usually impassive face of Arthur Ferris when he hung up the receiver of the public telephone upon its hook at precisely fifteen minutes past three o'clock in the office of Taylor's Hotel. The astonished girl gazed admiringly after the young lawyer when he dropped a two-dollar bill into her hand, saying, "Never mind the change." It was my lucky day," murmured Ferris as he sought the telegraph office. The measured words of Accountant Somers were still ringing in his ears. A very quiet election, no opposition to our ticket, directors' meeting pro forma, Vice President Selden cast majority vote for new officers, reports endorsed, Selden. President, yourself, Vice President, Hugh Worthington, Managing Director, new officers published tomorrow. Too late for the afternoon press. We'll go and report to Mr. Wade. The first official act of Vice President Arthur Ferris had been to order Accountant Somers to send a check for one month's extra salary to each of the office force, and then to add, "I shall be in Philadelphia for some days. Remember, Lafayette House." Use telegraph business cipher only. I will be too busy to come to the telephone. Shall be at Cramp's Yards taking a look with a view to further investments there. No flush of triumph colored Arthur Ferris's pale face as he pondered over his dispatch to Hugh Worthington. He suddenly paused, with his pencil in the air. By God, I have it. We will soft soap this fellow. A violence in quarrel is always a clumsy mistake. I need to keep in touch with Clayton, at least until old Hugh gets his claws upon him. What if the fool resigns and throws all up in a huff? There's no way to lure him out west then. It would not do to have anything happen to him here, and I'll ring in the old anxiety a bit also. He smiled artfully as he read over his two telegrams before handing them to the waiting operator. The anemic girl was sadly disappointed in their tenor. She had scented an intrigue in the presence of the dapper young lawyer with his distinctly clubman air. Shaw, only business," she murmured, as she dashed her hand into the cash till for the change of a five-dollar bill. But Arthur Ferris's resolute eyes recalled her to duty, as he impatiently said, "Repeat them both back to me at Lafayette House, Philadelphia. Take out the extra charge and please give me a press copy of each. I'll run over to Philadelphia." Drop in at the clubs, have a good time, and then disappear via Pittsburgh for New York," he said. "It will give time for Randall Clayton to cool off, and, after all, the smooth way is the best way. I can hold him over till Hugh works him on the easy pulley." He was proud of these two telegrams as he sat at his carefully chosen early dinner. He read over them with a secret glee. He is ours. No one can snatch him from our clutches. The old man can cajole him with Alice's wish that he should join the family party. That'll fetch him, fool, that he did not make the running while she was at his side. This sister business is always a rank failure, but he has made me a millionaire for life. Arthur Ferris had no pity for the man whose life secrets he had sapped in those four long years of treason to friendship. He recalled with a secret complacence the steps which had led him, bit by bit. Into Hugh Worthington's confidence through the frank disclosures of Clayton, and so, fortified by the single-hearted man's intimate relations with the Detroit household, 
Arthur Ferris had taken up every thread as it slipped through Clayton's busy fingers. The knowledge that he would enjoy Randall Clayton's real patrimony, that he had stolen a charming wife from the man who was bound to an unearned gratitude to Worthington, made this hour of triumph a most delicious one. Old Hugh needed me. He needed a man who would be a safe intermediary with Durham, one who was a safe deposit for both senator and millionaire. Now I hold every trump in life, and Clayton, adult, has thrown away his fortune and made mine. Then the thin-lipped lawyer recalled Balzac's remark, one, in order to succeed, must either cut one's way through life like a sword, or glide through the world quietly like a pestilence. I'll let Hugh use the sword, he laughed, as he enjoyed his well-warmed Chamberton. I'm beyond all the storms of fate now. What more could I desire? On the road to a million, a charming girl wife, one whom I can mould like clay, and Durham and Worthington can easily send me to Congress. He saw the Senate chamber opening to him through the rosy light of the wooing Burgundy, and again his eyes sought the telegram. Not a word to alter, and he smiled as he read. Hugh Worthington, Palace Hotel, Tacoma. A quiet election, all arranged. New officers published tomorrow. Telegraph Clayton to meet you at Cheyenne for conference. Have Alice join. Suggest month's vacation. He is irritable and suspicious. Full code telegrams to you at Cheyenne. We'll wait here until you have met him and disposed of his case. Ferris had added a key word which no one would suspect meant imminent danger, and signed an alias known to Hugh Worthington alone. But to Randall Clayton his Judas words of brotherly cordiality were as frank and open as the unsuspecting nature of the defrauded man demanded. The unhappy Clayton was troubled at heart as he opened this yellow paper, livid with its living lie, as he waited aimlessly at his rooms for some tidings of Emil Einstein, whose long absence had astonished him. In the lonely rooms, with his eyes fixed on Irma Gluyas's superb artist proof, Clayton gave himself easily up to Ferris's crafty subterfuge. He had already repented the violent quarrel. This marriage may be a mere rumor, he mused. Jack Witherspoon must make his words good when he comes. He had already half determined to frankly meet Hugh Worthington, with a demand for a clearing up of the whole mystery of his youthful dependence. The telegram from Jersey City disarmed all his resentment. It was addressed, Dear old boy, forget hasty words. Am tired with travel, worn out. Remember the old friendship. Stay in our rooms. We'll return in three days. You shall choose your way to arrange with Worthington. If you wish to stay on here, I'll telegraph jointly with you. Meet me at dinner Monday night. Century Club. When he had read the last words, Answer, Lafayette House, Philadelphia. Randall Clayton went out into the early evening and listlessly dispatched the words, All right, we'll stay on as requested. Then he slowly returned to his rooms. On his return, he found Emil Einstein awaiting him before his door. Clayton's beating heart told him that the unusual had happened. Speak, what is it? cried the half-crazed lover, and the boy then hurriedly told him of his late return to the office, after executing many errands for the absent Ferris. There was a woman, a lady, hesitated Einstein, trying to find your office, 
The elevator man told her that you had gone. She only spoke a little English, and, as I speak German, I tried to keep her. She dared not stay, almost shouted Clayton. She left word your friend is very ill, and that she cannot leave her. You cannot go there tonight, but the lady may come back tomorrow morning for you, if anything happens. She was very much frightened. And you, demanded Clayton, grasping the boy's arm. Why did you not bring her here? She could not stay. She had waited a long time before I came back, and I told her it was a half-holiday tomorrow, the three days' holiday coming on. Would you know her again? anxiously demanded Clayton. Certainly, murmured the sordid liar, speaking the truth for once. Describe her, hastily ordered the excited man, and Master Emil Einstein gave a not-too-glowing description of the charms of his own mother. Listen, said the half-demented Clayton, you must watch all tomorrow morning, down below, up on the sidewalk, and around the entrance. If that lady comes, just detain her down there, and I will join her at once. Not a word to a living soul. Swear that you'll keep this secret, and I'll make your fortune yet. I swear on my life, said the startled boy, frightened at the ghastly pallor of Clayton's face. He hastened away, leaving the cashier undisturbed at his last disclosure. I forgot to say that she fears they may move your friend to-night, someplace, God knows where, perhaps to some hospital, and then, of course, she couldn't come. Randall Clayton sank into a chair with a smothered groan, for the one haunting fear of his last three months was proving true. Here was the separation from Irma Gluyas, and on the verge of his fortune. My God, it's terrible, he cried. He waited until the boy had scuttled away. He must not know. One false step now would ruin all, thought Clayton. My love for Irma once suspected, and she would be spirited off to Europe, or lose her artistic future. If she were cast out, I have nothing to offer yet, nothing but castles in Spain. But the lad, hidden in a dark doorway, was greedily counting the loose bills which Clayton had hastily thrust into his hand. Paid for not giving away my own mother's secrets, the boy laughed viciously. The old girl is safe, but what the devil is she up to? He decided that he would cautiously watch over Clayton, 